0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Last week, Chris spoke about spiritual warfare as it relates to the family, yours and ours corporately. And as I was thinking about following that up, I decided to talk about something that, at first glance, might seem to be kind of a bit out of left field. The reason I chose it is it has a dramatic effect on families, and it is about spiritual warfare. And I'm talking about people's involvement in or flirtation with the occult. It isn't something that I like to talk about. In fact, the last time I did it was 13 years ago. But unfortunately, it is much, much more common than you might imagine, even among professing believers. And uh, just this week, I heard a case of a professing believer getting themselves involved in an area that is particularly murky and occult-like. So I started to do my research, and I turned to a passage that is a classic on the subject. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and verses 9 through 12 read like this, when you enter the land that... God, your God, is giving you. Don't take on the abominable ways of life of the nations there. Don't you dare sacrifice your son or daughter in the fire. Don't practice divination, sorcery, fortune-telling, witchery, casting of spells, holding seances, or channeling with the dead. People who do these things are are an abomination to God, and it's just because of such abominable practices that God, your God, is driving these nations out before you. As I considered that text, the first item mentioned, sacrificing your sons and daughters in the fires, my first thought was to pass completely over that phrase since it is something that we wouldn't even contemplate in our 21st century culture. To our mind, it's barbaric, unspeakably, unthinkably evil. Before we simply dismiss it as um, an ancient, brutal, pitiless, pagan practice and pass quickly on to things that people actually do in our culture, I I thought, you know, maybe I should try and understand why it is that people did what they did. And I thought about it, and you recognise that this is written to a culture that is largely agrarian. The livelihood of the population is dependent on good weather, on healthy crops, on bountiful harvests. And so the sacrifices that they made offering their sons and daughters in the fire were to the gods of fertility, the gods of weather. They sacrificed their children to ensure their ongoing and hopefully increasing and improving standard of living. So children were sacrificed for the ongoing prosperity of the community and the family that offered the sacrifices. And it made me wonder if we had a modern day equivalent of that practice, and it occurred to me that indeed we do. And rather than simply skip over the idea and move to the next thing on the list, this morning I'm going to take my life in my own hands and speak to it. I'm going to step out on very thin ice with very deep water beneath uh, beneath it. And the lyrics, uh, for those of you who remember Pink Floyd's song, Thin Ice, the lyrics came to mind as I contemplated whether I should even try and venture out onto this incredibly controversial subject. And the lyrics go, if you should go skating on the thin ice of modern life, dragging behind you the silent reproach of a million tear-stained eyes, don't be surprised when a crack in the ice appears under your feet and you slip out of your depth and out of your mind with your fear flowing out behind you as you claw at thin ice. And I might well be clawing at thin ice by the time I finish this message because I face the risk of alienating, offending, or perhaps re-traumatizing any number of you, and I do not do that triflingly. Nobody who cares for people would. However, by virtue of recent circumstances, this subject is very much on the minds of people, and thinking about it, I think, thinking about it biblically is, is really important. In fact, we've been asked by a number of you to kind of give us some sort of sense of how the Bible speaks about this subject. And in case you haven't joined the dots, and you don't know what I'm talking about, let me uh, enlighten you. I want to talk to you this morning about abortion. I'm pretty sure that all of you have heard about the US Supreme Court decision that has reversed the decades-old Roe v. Wade case on abortion. And the overturning of this 50-year-old legislation has provoked all sorts of reactions, not just in the US, but right across the world. And even though it has absolutely no jurisdiction in terms of New Zealand law, our news outlets have been at the forefront of depicting the court's decision as a disastrous step back into a very dim, dark past, the equivalent of the reintroduction of slavery. And our politicians have been very vocal in their opposition, actually politicians across the world. Uh, A giant leap backwards, said Boris Johnson. One wants to counter with Boris who? Boris is gone and one does hope his hairdresser has gone with him. (laughs) A loss for women everywhere, alleged our Prime Minister. Draconian, said one of our local MPs. Then of course at the opposite end of the spectrum there are those who are clapping their hands with absolute glee at the court's verdict. Some have long campaigned for the sanctity of life from the moment of conception and the Supreme Court's ruling is for them a pivotal, momentous point in the history of their struggle. The talk that I want to give you tonight is not intended to be political. It's not left or right. It's not national or Labor. It's not Republican or Democrat. It's my attempt to be biblical about a very difficult and controversial subject. How should we think about this uh, as disciples of Jesus? And my question, I guess, is I want to ask, are we being shaped and discipled by the scriptures? Or are we being shaped and discipled by our culture? One of the reasons I think this is such a hard subject to speak to and I su- is because I suspect many of us have been so thoroughly shaped and discipled by our culture that to question or challenge its conclusions on this matter is to invite derision, ridicule, ridicule, or perhaps perhaps even worse. Just very recently, I heard a young person who was in discussion with her parents on the subject, and her parents expressed reservations over the present public policy. And the young person responded with an exasperated, oh, for goodness sake, get with the program, to her parents. And I want to ask, whose program? Whose program are we talking about? What is the logic or even perhaps the spirit behind the program? Does the scripture have something to say about the program? Now, as I say, I know I'm entering into a discussion that is much more than a debate about abstract philosophy or ideology, whether you're for or against. We are dealing with an area that is sensitive and painful and is the subject of phenomenal hurt and pain in people's lives on both sides of the divide. And as I say, I don't mean to be hurtful or heartless and thereby needlessly inflict more pain, shame or guilt on anybody. Hence my natural aversion to even broach the subject. However, having said that, n- to not try to bring biblical truth to the area is literally to abandon people to the discipling force of our cultural voices. And they are loud and they are demanding. Now, I can't obviously deal with all of the issues in one talk. We simply do not have the time. And I just spent four pages of notes in about 10 minutes dancing all around the subject trying to set it up. So we haven't got a lot of time left. So I'm going to get to it. Now somebody interrupts and says, hang on, Don, I've got a question before you even start. How do we know that what you're about to say is actually a biblical valid viewpoint? It might just be your take on the issue. And not to be too blunt, I'm not sure I trust you on the subject, you do strike me at times like a bit of an old dinosaur in a tar pit. Well, thank you for your brutal observation. Um, And I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get through the talk if you keep interrupting me like that with those kinds of questions. But let me try and answer the question. You don't know. You don't know that this is a biblical viewpoint, a valid one. You've got to go as a student to the scriptures and look for yourself. I don't, I don't expect you to take anything that I say as the definitive voice on this subject or any other subject. Your responsibility as a disciple of Jesus is to be like the Berean Christians in Acts chapter 17. And of them it was said they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica in that they studied the Scriptures daily to see whether the things that Paul said were actually true or not. So it's your responsibility as a disciple to search the word. Does it say what I've said it says? If it doesn't, bin it and bin me with it. If it does, question, will you be shaped by it? Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ or have you been thoroughly convinced by the voices of our culture? So let's look at the scriptures. Hang on, Don. Sorry to interrupt again. I have a problem. I have studied the Bible, and I've looked at this, and Jesus never mentions the subject of abortion. We simply don't know what he thought about it. So any argument that you're about to make will of necessity be an argument from silence. And I've heard you say before, Don, that an argument from silence is not a good argument. You're getting rude interrupting me like this, but let me try and answer your question. I know that because Jesus doesn't address the subject of abortion directly and outrightly, he has been wooed by both sides of the debate. He's pro-life, he's pro-woman. Let me just say, he's actually both those two things, but I'm getting ahead of myself. And I want to say to you there are good answers from silence and there are bad answers from silence. Good answers from silence look at the historical, cultural details based on evidence that help us explain that silence. Not all arguments from silence are equal. Let me explain. Jesus, as we all know, was a Jew. He lived in a specific cultural setting and he shared a particular worldview with his contemporaries. And it was a culture and a worldview that had a very firm view on the value of human life, which actually was uncommon, unusual at that time in history. Jewish teaching was that Human life, all human life, is fashioned in the image of God and is therefore uniquely precious, based on Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, and some other verses. So, as you know, Jewish faith is based around the Torah, the first five books of our Old Testament, and it included what they called the B'nai Noach, the seven laws of Noah. And according to the Talmud, the seven laws of Noah were given by God as a binding set of universal laws for the whole of humanity. And the third Noahide law says, He who spills the blood of a man in a man, his blood will be spilt. An unusual way of saying things. But the Talmud says that unusual phrase, in a man, was about a pre born baby in its mother's womb. So. Maimonides, the great 12th century Jewish interpreter of the law wrote, a descendant of Noah who kills a human being, even a fetus in his mother's womb, is to be put to death. Now you say, talk about draconian, Don, here we are. Now you have to know that the death penalty in this instance, and also in some other cases where it's demanded in the Old Testament, was actually really carried out and it was permissible to produce a monetary fine that was accepted in many cases in lieu of the death penalty. Maimonides followed up by saying abortion is allowable if the pregnancy definitely and without question is a threat, an immediate threat to the physical life of the mother. So traditional Jewish law holds that a pre-born child has the right to live a right to live that is just as strong as the mother's, except where he or she endangers the mother's very physical life. Chief Rabbi Emmanuel Jacob Boritz outlined the the traditional Jewish thought and belief when he said Jewish law sees every human life as having the sanctity of intrinsic and infinite worth. One life has as much value as a hundred or a thousand. You cannot multiply infinity and you cannot divide it. So every human being has identical worth and is identically worth saving. Now, I say all that to say Jesus lived and ministered in that intellectual, spiritual milieu. That was his accepted environmental worldview. And while to say Jesus never spoke about abortion, therefore any argument using his name about abortion is is an argument from silence. While that is technically true, it's far from convincing given this specific, particular background. And I would want to venture that Jesus never spoke to subjects like this because he didn't need to. It was absolutely assumed by his contemporaries and by his culture. Jesus was actually silent on a number of ethical and moral issues. He didn't speak about rape. He didn't speak about incest. He didn't speak about bestiality. Does that mean then that he was potentially indifferent to these things or even that his silence was an endorsement of those things? I doubt that any of us would want to say that. We know Jesus was a law-abiding Jewish man. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 through 19, Jesus says, "'Don't suppose for a minute "'that I've come to demolish the Scriptures, "'either God's law or the prophets. "'I'm not here to demolish, but to complete. "'I'm gonna put it all together, "'put it all together in a vast panorama. "'God's law is more real and lasting "'than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. "'And long after the stars burn out "'and the earth wears out, God's "'God's law will be alive and working.'" Now, I know at times he certainly challenged the Pharisaic interpretation of the law, but the law itself, he never scoffed at, devalued uh, or or contradicted. Let me give you a list of scriptures that actually speak to this subject. Now, we're not going to read through them. As you go out tonight, if you would so like it, there is a little card with these scriptures printed on them. And my uh, advice or my exhortation is that you would take it and go home and go through it. And read through it. The scriptures I'll put up on the board. That's the list of them. And I want to read just one, and it's the scripture from Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16 from the message translation. It says, Oh, yes, you shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation! You know me inside and out, you know every bone in my body, you know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watch me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you, the days of my life all prepared before I even lived one day. One comment about these scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, the same words are used uh, to describe pre-born infants and young children. No, no change in the words. In the Hebrew, the word is yeled, and it's used to describe a child in utero in Exodus 21, and a weaned child in Genesis 21, verse 8. In the Greek language, it's brephos, and it's used to describe a child in utero in Luke 1:41, a newborn in Luke 2:12, and an older child in 2 Timothy 3:15. I say that because it indicates a continuity from conception to childhood. There's no change of status or personhood implied or imagined in either a Hebrew or Greek thinking. Now, I'm very aware that these scriptures might hopefully be enough to satisfy a follower of Jesus about the preciousness of every life, including the preborn life. Our secular friends maybe are not interested in a religious point of view, they're going to say to you something like, keep your rosaries off our ovaries. That's the the placard. We're not interested in your religious argument. What you are saying is just a religious argument. Well my goodness, I have to say I'm very relieved because for a moment I thought you were going to say it was a bad one. Being religious doesn't make it a bad argument, just as being secular doesn't make it a good one. Both religious and secular involve worldviews. I was fascinated when um, Christopher Luxton was uh, made uh, leader of the opposition party and Jessica much Mackay on the news asked him if his Christian worldview would would influence his political views. Why don't they ask Jacinda Ardern that question? Why don't they say will your secular worldview affect your politics? They both have a worldview. A worldview isn't a prerogative of a Christian. Secular people don't have a neutral worldview. They have a worldview too, and it guides and leads them. The argument isn't a matter of being religious or secular. Now, the argument I present might be religious, but for me, the issue of abortion isn't a a religious or secular argument. It's whether it's a good one or a bad one, whether it's a valid one or an invalid one, whether it's a logical one or an illogical one. And I'd like to suggest to you tonight that much of the argument for the case case for abortion is actually defective. As I say, I don't have time to explore it in depth, but let me speak to a couple of things that I'm sure you've heard before, common arguments that are offered as part of the pro-choice position that I think are questionable to say the least. And I hope that you'll think about them if you are pro-choice. Firstly, it's argued that abortion is permittable because it doesn't constitute taking a life. We simply don't know when life actually begins. And people doggedly cling to that argument even though it's completely passe, even though it's unfashionable and out of date. We know exactly when life begins, and no self-respecting scientist denies it. It begins indisputably at conception. Scientists have recently discovered when a sperm meets an egg, there is an explosion of tiny particles that erupts from the egg at the exact moment of conception. And scientists have captured this astonishing fireworks on camera. And they know, without doubt, that's when life begins. That's when biological life begins. Quite frankly, we've known that for years. I learnt that in fifth form biology, when the world was way back and black and white. Thank you. So, because we know that indisputably, the argument has changed. Yes, the fetus is regarded as biologically human from the moment of conception. That ground has been grudgingly yielded. But it, the fetus, are not persons until a later unspecified period. That's the way the argument goes. The goalposts have now been moved. So we now have a new category of individuals, the human non-person, In order to achieve the status of personhood, the baby in the womb has to achieve a certain level of cognitive function. Now, I hasten to point out that there is absolutely zero scientific evidence for that. There is no single dramatic turning point that can be empirically detected where this mysterious threshold of personhood is reached or crossed and the so-called cognitive functions necessary for achieving this personhood are completely arbitrary and subjective. Who decides what they are, on what basis, and for what reasons? Joseph Fletcher, in his book on humanhood, called Humanhood, proposed 15 qualities that he thought were necessary to define when human life was worthy of respect and protection, when biological life became a person and included in Fletcher's list were intelligence. One wants to ask how much and at what point that is measured. Self-awareness and concern for others. Well, that's the narcissists among us gone, which might not necessarily be a bad thing. Self-control, golly, that's the teenagers gone, and probably a couple of adults as well. Communication, I'm sorry, guys, but that's the whole male population gone. And finally, curiosity. Well, at least we can take comfort from the fact that our cats are safe. (laughs) I'm sorry for the levity, but this is subjective silliness, and it doesn't take a prophet or a rocket scientist to point this out. You score too low on any of those tests, and you may not qualify for personhood. You are merely biological life, not worth living. Friends, without an objective criteria, the question of who is worthy of living gets defined by raw power, as in the days of Nazi Germany, when the powers that be determined that whole categories of people, Jews, gypsies, and the disabled mentally and physically among them, do not qualify, did not qualify for personhood, and therefore therefore could be justly disposed of. You say to me, Don, that's being a bit overdramatic. I don't think it is. Clearly, some of these personhood criteria cannot possibly function until after birth. And that is why there is now more and more serious talk about what is called afterbirth abortion. James Watson, co-discoverer of the DNA double helix, advocates waiting for three days after the baby is born before the status of personhood is applied. In his view, that gives the parents time to determine whether the child is wanted or not. Whether it's wanted actually becomes the defining point, we'll talk about that a bit later. Francis Crick, another Nobel Prize laureate said, no newborn infant should be declared human unless it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment, and if it fails these tests it forfeits its right to live. One of the world's foremost ethicists, a man by the name of Peter Singer says, and I quote, since babies are not self-aware, they are not persons, and their lives are of less value than, a, than the life of a pig, uh, a dog, or a chimpanzee. And alarmingly, Singer goes on even further and suggests that even a three-year-old is a grey case as far as personhood is concerned. These aren't extreme voices. might might, might seem extreme to you, but these are highly uh, esteemed scientific voices and ethical voices. In the Roe v. Wade case, the decision in 1973, Justice Harry Blackman asserted point blank that an unborn baby is not a person. He said, and I quote, if the fetus were recognized as a person, then abortion would necessarily be illegal and the fetus's right to life would be guaranteed. It is not a person, he said. Now, I don't know whether you're shocked, but you should be. You can say to me, well, okay, Don, I I admit that that's a little bit confronting and perhaps a little bit problematic for my pro-choice views, but what do you say to the argument that a woman has right to control her own body? Surely you would acknowledge that a woman should never be forced to carry an unwanted child. This is the my womb or my body, my choice argument just before I engage with that argument, let me just say that the use of language is absolutely vital in this debate, and and all others as well, because language can be used as a weapon and is often used to desensitise people's consciences. And you can disguise and sell anything you want if you use the right language. Semantic ledger domain. Which is verbal sleight of hand, can prepare us for accepting a horror that we would, under other circumstances and with different language, reject outright. So the Nazis called the trains that carried the Jews off to the death camp the charitable transport company for the sick. Who could object to that? In one hospital where a spina bifida child was deliberately starved to death, it was said that they'd been put on a low-calorie diet. Vladimir Putin's special military operation is a brutal war by everybody else's language. And language can be used deliberately and strategically, and is, by the pro-abortion lobby. Abortion is very rarely, if ever, called abortion described in one conference recently as a retrospective method for fertility control. It's called the termination or the discontinuation of the pregnancy. You'll note that the term baby is never, never used. Other euphemisms like fetal tissue, the fertilized ova, uterine contents, the clump of cells, or the products of conception, the POC, are substituted for the term baby. And I want to say to you, sterile idiom can be a defense mechanism behind which we conceal the grossest reality. It's ironic and confusing to me that when a child is wanted and the mother tragically miscarries, there is great sadness over the loss of the baby. And I hear nobody calling it the product of conception, the POC or the uterine contents. They say... We are so, so sorry that you've lost your baby. If the baby is just fetal tissue, or a clump of cells, or a POC, then it's easy to imagine that its removal is no different from the removal of any other unwanted tissue, human tissue, on a par with the removal of the woman's appendix, her kidney stones, a gallbladder, or tonsils. However, there is a massive, massive problem with this argument. And it's this, the unborn child within the pregnant mother, within her womb, is not part of her body, although many people seem quite unaware of that biological fact. The fetus, the baby, is genetically distinct. It has its own individual gender, blood type, bone structure, and genetic code, and from the moment of conception, it directs its own development. Obstetrician Bernard Nathanson said the modern science of immunology has shown that the unborn child is not part of the woman's body in the sense that her kidneys or gallbladder is. Now I grant you that the mother very graciously gives the child womb and board for nine months. However, to suggest that she has the right to kill the lodger that's living under her roof is several bridges too far we all recognise that there is a moral and legal limit to our bodily autonomy. My right to swing my fist stops where your nose begins. And my womb, my choice, starts to sound rather hollow when we consider that that baby is not biologically part of the mother. It is another distinct life and her choice dramatically affects another distinctly different life without wanting to be crude. If the mantra were my genitalia, my choice, my vagina, my choice, we would all put our hands up and say 100%. Women have unlimited right to exercise reproductive choice prior to the conception of the child. Birth control methods have developed massively since the 1970s. And in my humble opinion, abortion need not, in fact, should not be considered as a reproductive choice any more than infanticide is. I confess to being absolutely stunned when women claim that abortion is a woman's right and it's good for all women and all women should be pro-choice, and that the reversal of Roe versus Wade is a catastrophe for women. And I say it because of this. Abortion might possibly be conceived, although I'm doing my very best to prove it's not, as being good for a Western women. But for all other women in the world, it is absolutely calamitous. Selective gender-based abortion has cost the lives of over 23 million females. It amounts to gender side. The three deadliest words in our world are, it's a girl. How in heaven's name, friends, can abortion seriously be touted as a wonderful gift to women? Pro-choice Western women might do well to consider their non-Western sisters before talking about abortion being good for women. You're getting a bit excited, Don. Stop interrupting me. You say, well, okay, Don, what about instances of rape, incest, and fetal abnormality? You haven't talked about that. Surely there's a place for abortion in such cases. You know what? I haven't mentioned this particularly because that argument appeals to an extreme to justify a normal. According to the data, as many as between 95 and 98% of the abortions that take place involve healthy mothers and healthy children. And a lot of them are about standard of living, ensuring that I can keep paying the mortgage. I can't have a child now because we can't pay the mortgage. I can't afford to give up the... J- How is that that different from the ancient pagans who sacrificed their children to ensure the standard of living. That's why I put those two things together. 98% involve healthy mothers and healthy children. Less than 1%, 0.6% of the abortions were a result of rape or incest. Now, I want to say, those situations, when they do occur, are without doubt traumatic and tragic, and I can only imagine the complications they involved. While I still think there are profound moral and ethical implications to be grappled with in those situations, I suspect there's not too many of us that would be judgmental about the choices a woman makes under such duress. I wouldn't be pointing a finger. However, that being said, I don't think we should be suckered into making laws for the majority on the basis of an extreme minority of cases. You say, well, Don, there are other arguments as well. What about the danger of illegal abortions? If women are denied the right to an abortion, they'll end up being forced to go to back alley butchers. You know, you you often see on abortion right placards or buttons the, the drawing of the infamous symbol of the coat hanger. Imagine a young woman undergoing an abortion with a coat hanger to say the least, powerfully persuasive, emotionally charged. But my question is, does that make a good argument? You see, it begs the question. The question is, is the child fully human? And if it is, then that argument is tantamount to saying, because people die or are harmed while killing other people, the state should make it safe for them to do it. We say, Don, what about the argument from economic inequity? You know, pro-choice advocates argue that if abortion is not made widely available, then only the rich will have the means to procure a safe one. That will mean that people who have insufficient financial means, they'll be subject to unscrupulous physicians and back-alley butchers. In order to be fair and just, abortion should be available to all and not just be the prerogative of the wealthy. Well, again, it begs the question. The question is is the fetus, is this child fully human? Look, I think we would all consider it a bizarre argument if somebody came in and said hiring a hitman should be legalized since at present only the rich people can afford them. Plainly, that's not fair. Shouldn't poor people have equal access to their services? We would all go, what? Somewhat dubious argument. Now, I'm sure that I haven't covered all the questions you might have. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to sit down and have a fireside chat about this series and uh, all that we've done around the family. And if you wish, if you'd like maybe to ask some more, you can submit a question um, that perhaps you think I haven't covered or haven't covered adequately, Um, I could recommend perhaps some resources for you to follow up on. But let me just close with a couple of thoughts. If you're a follower of Jesus... And you would say, Don, I'm pro-choice. Then I challenge you, go to the Scriptures. Who is discipling you? Is it the culture? Or can you from the Scriptures say, this is my position and this is what the Scripture says about it? The Scriptures are your touchstone. They are your north star. Your question as a disciple of Jesus is, what saith the Scriptures? Perhaps there'll be some people here this evening and um, you've had an abortion or perhaps you've assisted somebody else to procure one and you don't feel it's wrong and you don't feel any lasting regret and there are people who are in that category. One, one woman recently came out publicly saying that having her abortion was the best decision she ever made and if you're in that position, I'm not quite sure what to say to you except I'm not lining up to throw stones. Okay, I'm not make, I'm, I'm trying to expose perhaps what the Bible says. However, um, it, it's up to you to make that call. There will be people who are either here tonight or listening to my voice on podcast and your lives have been dramatically impacted by abortion. You've had one. Or perhaps you've pressured or financed somebody else into having, them, having one and you now profoundly and deeply regret it. Can I say to you, Jesus is a redeemer. There's no sin too big, there's no sin too bad that Jesus would say to you, I'm sorry, but that's too big, and I won't forgive that one. He forgives and saves to the uttermost, Hebrew says. We, had, we used to have a saying, we'd say, Jesus saves from the guttermost to the uttermost, and he does. There's no sin too big, too large, too dark, that he can't forgive. And if, he, if you've asked forgiveness, there is now therefore no condemnation to the church. We can't just stand on the sidelines and point out what we think is wrong with our bony prophetic fingers. We've got to get into the game and be there for people, for people who feel that they don't have any other choices. Some of you here tonight feel a profound calling into this area of ministry. What I would want to say to you is pray, seek God, get counsel, get in the game. Let's fight for our families. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.